welcome to Greenville Radio. I'm your host, Kendall Titchener. On the show, we share how notable leaders apply environment, social, and governance factors in business. Mila Craig is the founder and president of Quebec-based Milani. Mila helps pension funds, investment managers, and public companies understand sustainable investing and sustainable business. Today, we explore how responsible investing is being integrated into capital markets. Thanks for joining me, Mila. Thank you very much, Kendall. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we jump into things, uh, tell us about your background. So before getting into the area of responsible investment and, and ESG, I spent 15 years in institutional equity sales, which means that I was selling the research of our financial analysts at RBC Dominion Securities and Scotia Capital to the large institutional portfolio managers and analysts across Canada. I left that role about 13 years ago now, and uh, after spending a year at my own time and expense researching and, and traveling the world to learn, I came to the conviction that there was something in this newly developing trend called corporate social responsibility. That's what it was called 13 years ago. Um, and coming from the depths of capital markets, it seemed a bit strange, I'll admit, but I realized that there was value to how corporations were managing issues beyond their financial performance. So in 2008, I began Milani and was uh, focused, uh, focused solely on the investor community and had a mandate at the time with Deloitte to lead their sustainability practice here in the Quebec market. As I completed that mandate, the Ontario Pension Benefit Act had come into fruition, which required that pension funds had to disclose if they were integrating ESG or environmental, social and governance issues or not into their investment practices. And of course, every one of those pension funds asked their asset managers to confirm whether they were doing so. And that led to the asset manager community across Canada needing to move into ESG. And there were very few professionals with my background available to do so at the time. As the market um, continued to develop, I realized within a, a year, year and a half, that no one was really helping the publicly listed companies, however, manage these issues so that they could disclose appropriately the data to their investors, who were my clients, on these issues that they needed information on. So that's where we decided to expand Milani to beyond the investor community. And we now service both. So we work very closely with building bridges between the Canadian investor community and we work very much with the publicly listed corporations in Canada as well in bridging this gap, uh, the information gap. How do you define responsible investing? So responsible investment is a movement to broaden the lens of investing from the traditional investment approach where only financials were taken into consideration to one where additional elements are now being taken into consideration in, in making those investment decisions. Responsible investment started from a, a value standpoint where individual investors didn't want to own specific types of organizations in their portfolios. But that's what we now call socially responsible investing, which is, is one only one approach to responsible investment. And there are numerous other approaches that you can take 
the movement though has led now to mainstream to the mainstream investment community recognizing that there's value in issues that relate to the environment and society that are issues that can have an enormous impact on the organizations in which they invest and that they need to be taking these issues into consideration to make good investment decisions so i've always i always suggest that responsible investment is like an umbrella and under that umbrella you have multiple approaches that can be used and this is where there tends to be so much confusion where people make reference to responsible investment when what they really mean is ESG integration or socially responsible investing. Or today, what we're hearing a lot is just the term ESG seems to be everywhere now, but it's often being used interchangeably with responsible investing. And there are nuances between those. Can you explain the different styles of responsible investing? Sure, so to, to that point, so ESG integration really means the systemic um, or systematic inclusion of environmental, social, and governance considerations in one's investment decision-making process. So with ESG integration, there's no limiting one's investment universe, which is different from some of the other approaches I, I'll talk about. So basically it's the traditional investment approach, but one with a wider lens that is looking at all the risks and the opportunities that may arise from environmental and social issues and whether they're being managed well through governance lens. When we talk about socially responsible investing though, this is the one that's most confused with ESG integration. So socially responsible investment is either uh, negative or positive screening. If it's negative screening, this is an exclusion from the fund of certain sectors, companies, or practices, such as tobacco, cannabis, alcohol, or perhaps even fossil fuels. These are typically driven by values. And of course, because of these exclusions, you're adding some limitation to your investment universe. But there can also be positive screening, where you're looking for very specific inclusions in the fund's portfolio, such as water, renewable energy, maybe even women in leadership. We've also seen, and this is more of a European standard, we don't see a lot of it in Canada, but there's one that's called norms-based. And it also uses a screening mechanism, but it's based upon sort of minimum international business standards like the UN Global Compact. And then we've got best-in-class investing. And this is based on, on with a focus to invest in companies that are top performance uh, or top performers on ESG criteria in their particular asset class or category. Here, I always like to speak about the energy sector in Canada and that rather than a divestment approach of not owning any companies in the energy sector, this is where you might decide that you still want some exposure to the sector but that you'll want to own the best rated companies as it relates to their management of ESG related risks. And then within this, underneath this umbrella, we, we also have something called engagement and shareholder action, which is a major theme that is, is um, driven by responsible investors to influence corporate behavior. And this is something that we are seeing increasingly important across almost all of these different investment approaches. 
And there's two last ones that maybe I'll talk to. One is themed funds. And these are where you're addressing a specific sustainability issue. Again, such as renewable energy, food, water, technology, agriculture, or some combination of these issues. Um, thematic investments can seek to combine attractive risk return profiles with the intention to contribute to specific environmental or social outcomes. And it can also extend to impact investing, although risk-adjusted returns may no longer be a priority in that case. And that leads me to the last one, which is impact investing, where, the, where an investor is looking for a measurable social impact at the same time as some financial return, which may or may not be lower. And there was a time where this was, this was expected that you had to give up financial returns to get that impact. But that view is really starting to change and we're, we're really starting to see um, a change in the definition of impact investing. So what is a typical day like for you? <laughs> That's funny. Um, I don't think there is a typical day for me, <laughs> which is what I love about my work, quite <laughs> honestly. Um, I start each day with planning for the day ahead. And, you know, this is followed by a, a daily team call. It's our opportunity to connect with each other. And uh, it's especially important now that we're all working from home remotely. We check in, we review, we revise priorities, provide updates of news flows from overnight, share research, et cetera. And then we're off for the day. And I spend a lot of my time working directly with my teams on the strategies for our clients. And I work you know, really closely with the team in executing parts of those, climate, uh, those client mandates, speaking with our investors, brainstorming, doing workshops, interacting with clients or doing speaking engagements and, and educating the, the larger public about this topic, such as this interview today. Great. Well, I mean, you've uh, definitely done a great job um, with your uh, creating a name for yourself, I guess I should say your your reputation precedes you because um, there was a lot of chatter on on LinkedIn when I started this podcast about how you were someone I needed to have on the show. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so why should investors do an ESG analysis? Well, investors look at ESG issues when they're when they're investing because research has shown that in any one organization, as much as 90% of the valuation on the stock market or in the in capital markets of that organization can be influenced by what we call intangible value. That is issues like your brand and your reputation. In fact, we've seen statistics that indicate that as much as 20, about 20% of the value of an organization is, is based on your reputation alone. So investors look to companies to see how they're managing issues like the treatment and health and safety of their employees or how, um, how and what they're doing to consider issues like climate change and water use and protection of client data and information. And how these issues are managed can have an enormous impact on that reputational value of the organization. And if these issues represent up to 90% of the valuation of, an or of that organization, then it becomes important for investors to understand if the boards of directors and the management teams of those investee companies 
are really setting appropriate strategies and, and taking actions to manage these issues. If they're not, then there are risks that the valuation of the investment will decrease. And if they are, then how are they managing those risks? Or where are they seeing opportunities to create long-term value for the organization? Do they need to pivot? These are all the types of questions that investors are looking to have answers to. And once you have it, then they integrate that information into the assumptions in their financial models. And then they're able to uh, make decisions as to the pricing, whether, you know, whether it's a good opportunity to buy that, that um, uh, stock or whether they should be selling it or holding it. And so it, it's a part of an overall process that investors are using. But it's really about you know, that, that 90% and being able to try to decrease that 90% intangible down to something lower so that uh, you can integrate it into the investment decision. Where can investors look for ESG-related data sources and ratings? Again, great question. <laughs> um, there are multiple ways to get this type of information. And I would say the first is from the issuers themselves in the form of their annual filings, their sustainability or ESG reports. As well, there are, are multiple third-party rating agencies um, that rate organizations, uh, the likes, uh, likes of MSCI or Sustainalytics. And there are the traditional financial services aggregators like Bloomberg and Refinitiv, which typically sit on the desk of most, uh, most financial players. And then there's a growing list of tools being made available from artificial intelligence firms as well which are providing very unique perspectives based on data that generally the company doesn't control, often sifting out any corporate information, uh, such a, an organization such as True Value Labs, but there are many others as well. And with the increasing need for climate and, and carbon related data, places like the CDP or the Carbon Disclosure Project provide a lot of data but there's others like the Carbon Tracker and other service providers as well. Another movement that we're seeing, uh, we saw generally in 2019 into 2020 is that the sell side brokers are really starting to produce um, the types of research that the investment community is used to receiving. So that's been a, a, a significant move forward. And then, as you, as you can tell by here, there are multiple networks through which investors can get access to information. But the, there is one issue that remains, and it's about the quality of the information. And given how closely we work with investors, you know, one of the major changes we've observed in the past 18 to 24 months is that most institutional investors no longer rely on any one of these sources. Most are moving, I would say at various degrees, to undertake in-house analysis of these ESG factors themselves, using these various data sources as inputs to assess the financial materiality of some ESG issues. And that's a really important distinction. There's a lot of information that's being disclosed in the public forum that is interesting, but what the investor community is really looking for is information that may have an impact on the financial viability of that organization over time. 
And that's where, you know, the, the discussion of materiality becomes really important. So how are ESG factors being integrated into the mainstream financial Well, there's a lot going on. Um, And as mentioned, maybe I'll start with the investors because, you know, the investors need financially material decision useful information to be, you know, to be disclosed so that they can absorb this information and take it into consideration in that investment analysis I spoke about earlier but they're typically not getting the kind of information they need. So disclosures are an important part of this equation. And I'll try to keep this short, but what we're hearing from investors is a loud call for issuers to disclose financially material ESG issues using the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board or SASB's framework, which is focused on materiality and is aimed at investors together with the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures or the TCFD framework. Um, Why? Because they want comparability on these issues. But within the sector, which is what you asked me, it's not just about investors. When we work with our corporate clients, we refer to their need to be addressing their financial stakeholders. Yes, an organization has multiple stakeholders as as, uh, as it develops. But within the issue of the need to access capital or funding to grow their organization, they need to consider how they'll work with all of their financial stakeholders. So who are they? They're in addition to investors, there are bankers, the insurance companies and credit rating agencies to name a few. And if you're in a business in the financial sector, like a bank or an insurance company, you have changes um, being directed to your business by governments and regulators and central banks. And as we speak, ESG issues are being integrated at various speeds across the whole financial sector. One of the issues being communicated by the supervisors or the regulators for the financial sector is really their concern that the risks of climate change are not yet integrated into risk models or into the systems of our global financial sector. And here lies a great concern that if we don't start to integrate this in an expedited fashion, that the world could experience another global financial collapse like we experienced in 2008. And of course, no one wants that. So we are seeing a move to stress test banks and insurance companies, meaning assessing how they are prepared to manage climate related risks in their businesses. And we're seeing calls for more and more reporting on these climate related issues, which is what the TCFD is all about. So it's not just about corporate issuers reporting, but its goal is a broad disclosure related to the systemic issue by all banks insurance companies, asset owners, and asset managers globally, as well as corporations. So basically anyone in that financial system. And just last week, we heard Mark Carney calling for mandatory reporting to the TCFD uh, framework globally. And I think this is a recognition of the degree to which central banks and regulators are really becoming concerned about the impacts that this might have on the global economy. And of course, this was before the COVID pandemic hit us as well. So 
um, I think there's a, a, a sincere effort to try to divert all of this from happening in the wake of the pandemic that we're currently living. And I guess in, in doing so too, it would allow investors and analysts to do a little bit more benchmarking, correct? If there was more cohesion in that disclosure. Absolutely. And, and I mean, benchmarking is part of it, but I think, you know, over time in particular with the TCFD, it's really about understanding where the potential risks are and it's very forward looking. So it, it's, it's, a, it's an area that's a bit of an uncomfortable place um, for most uh, organizations because most of our financial reporting tends to be backward looking. Um, and it really is reporting, not looking at scenario analysis. And that's really what we're, what, you know, what's, what's being asked of many of these organizations in the TCFDs. So um, what investors want through that is a bit of a lens into the thinking and the understanding of those investee companies are they aware of the of a transition that's starting to take place in the economy and and how do they envision themselves um you know managing their business through that transition well this parlays nicely in, into my next question uh, which is what are some of the investment challenges your clients are facing and how are they solving So that's an interesting question. Um, in particular, given that we work, work both with investors and corporate clients, you know, the challenges are a bit different, but they're highly connected. <laughs> um, you know, investors, to your point, are seeking good data to be able to integrate this into their investment analysis and, and are really being asked to consider how large uh, issues like climate change can be absorbed in that investment approach because they're being asked to do so from multiple actors in the financial services sector. For example, if that investor is a PRI signatory, it's now mandatory to report to the TCFD framework. Um, they now, there are new stewardship codes that have come into place in the UK and now in Japan, where investors now need to demonstrate that their investment approaches bring outcomes. So it's not no longer just about how many meetings are you having to gather information or to try to nudge a company forward, but it's actually now about trying to measure the impact that you're having with your investments. And of course, this is leading to a question about fiduciary duty. Um, a Canadian, it's a Canadian initiative called the Climate Law Initiative uh, out of the University of British Columbia recently published a paper suggesting that CPP, our, our national pension fund, may not be doing enough to act on this, this transition to a lower carbon economy. And they noted that there have not been any lawsuits against any institutional investors in Canada yet. So just the risk of this is enough to send shockwaves um, through the investment community and to really to, to determine what are their fiduciary duty limitations or are there any? And are there any growing reputational risk for these investors for not embracing this responsible investment movement? And then on the corporate side, they need to disclose ESG related information such that investors can take this information into consideration. Yet that's typically not easy to do. Because as I mentioned, it's not about the report. It's about what happens to the business strategy because of the need to report. So businesses are trying to find their way along this path. 
And it's not something that can be turned on a dime. It takes time to do this right. And to integrate ENS issues into their strategy, uh, there needs to be a new oversight mechanism put into place, which is governance. And of course, COVID has created a whole new dynamic into the development of these strategies. And it's a challenging time for issuers. You know, one of the big questions is always, do we cut back on communications and ESG disclosures, or should we be moving full speed ahead with that communications? Because it's what will provide us with the capital we need to maneuver during this unprecedented time. And this is the question that's on the minds of many in the market today. It's what we've seen, you know, the root of, of um, those who go down this route of making the decision to invest, they are finding it incredibly beneficial, but it's a really hard decision to make if your CFO doesn't understand the value of ESG to his or her financial stakeholders and the ability uh, to get access to capital or to lower that cost of capital. So how can organizations make themselves more attractive to well, investors? Well, for me, the number one thing that companies can do is to understand what are those financially material ESG issues. And then set out on a, on a path to communicate those issues with metrics and targets to the financial community. By doing so, the organization is really helping the investor community understand what it should focus on and how it relates to their business. Of course, the way to do this is on an ongoing basis is through that report. But remember that the report is not the be all and the end all. And you know, consider that an ESG report is different than a sustainability report. It's one that is much more focused on investors than on all of the stakeholders. Doesn't mean you still shouldn't consider how to communicate with the other stakeholders. But this particular stakeholder needs special attention. So we actually do an annual study on the disclosures of Canadian listed companies. Uh, and as of August 31st, 2020, only 58% of companies on the TSX uh, on the TSX actually have a dedicated report. So we still have a way to go. But of those reports, we've seen a significant increase in reports that are now ESG reports, up, for, up to 25% of that 58 um, versus 12% last year. So we've seen a significant move in organizations recognizing that there is a better way. But the point is, it's once you're done with the report, then you proactively need to go out and engage with those financial stakeholders. To be quite frank, your investors really want to hear from you. <laughs> They're looking for investment ideas. In particular, those who are innovating and building strategies related to this transition to a lower carbon economy, investors need to invest those funds and they're looking for opportunities to do so. But if you're not telling them about your strategy and how it's changing, um, then they can't know. And maybe a, a last point here is to try to measure your impact. I believe this will be one of the most important elements that you can take on to help investors as you move forward. As mentioned earlier, they too are needing to find ways to demonstrate the impact of their investments. 
and we don't believe that this is going to slow down. So consider how your material issues relate to the sustainable development goals. Measure it, talk about it, and find ways to make it easier for the investment community to connect to your strategy and your outcomes. And of course, the way that investors will look to continue to get performance will be through engagement with those companies they own. So that's either through one-on-one -on -one dialogue and discussions. It may be through collaborative investment initiatives like the Canadian Coalition of Good Governance or something like the Climate Action 100 Plus. It might be through their voting or their use of shareholder resolutions. They have many tools at their disposal, which can and are being used depending on the level of concern that they might have with the actions of an investee organization. And of course, the ultimate course of action for an investor is actually to divest of the position, quite simply because they're so concerned about the, the potential performance of that entity over time. And what we would suggest is that you want to embrace this engagement and not shy away from it. Because this kind of engagement is not shareholder activism. These investors are not acting in an effort to sit on your board or to drive the, the complete strategy of your business. They really want information and they want to be rest assured of the direction uh, that you're taking the organization. Thanks for that. It's um, There's been a lot of, I think, confusion in this area. So you provided a lot of clarity and it's it's been kind of an area that I've been wondering whether or not we'll see um, a lot of companies build out stronger IR teams um, because of, of this, the need yeah, for this. I, I think there's, a, I mean, I think so. there is a need for investor relations for sure. Um, and, and we're seeing that, we're definitely seeing that movement. But I think on top of that, I think we need to get out of the silos. That, you know, this is no longer a sustainability issue. We often see the teams of the corporate secretary, the investor relations, the sustainability team, sometimes the treasurer, the, the finance department, um, you know, the companies that really understand the value this creates for the business and their ability to get access to capital, it's all hands on deck. So this is no longer a siloed um, effort. And I think that's part of what investors are looking for um, through this engagement over time. So let's, let's focus on, I guess, <laughs> 2020's headliner, COVID. <laughs> um, what has COVID's impact been? Actually, on I think to, to the surprise of many, it has had a rather positive impact on the, the responsible investment movement. Um, we're actually seeing record levels of funds flowing into ESG funds. The performance of many of these funds has actually been better than the market, um, with some actually staying in positive territory while the market corrected back in the March-April timeline. And actually in April, we conducted a Canadian institutional investor uh, ESG perception study to assess where the major investors felt the impacts would be out of this pandemic. And, and that was driven somewhat by some of our corporate clients who were suggesting that they no longer needed to worry about this ESG thing. Um, and what we found was that 74% of respondents believe that COVID-19 would have a positive impact on ESG. 
And rather than taking a step back, 65% of those investors actually expected to see enhanced ESG disclosures by investee companies, with only 4% of them expecting companies to put less focus on ESG disclosures. So investors clearly wanted to understand how companies managed in the crisis and suggested that the, the, the question for an issuer shouldn't be more so not whether to disclose or not, but really what to disclose. So 78% of those investors basically said that they have maintained or increased their engagement activities as a result of the pandemic, and that those ESG priorities were shifting a bit as the value of the S issue has become much clearer and there was a recognition of this interconnectedness between the E, the S, and the G issues. And it's interesting, just last week I saw a note from True Value Labs where they've been tracking the news flows between these E, S, and G issues over 2020. And during the early part of the pandemic, what we saw was that the S increased substantially in the weighting of news flows to the point that there were questions if environmental issues would actually remain important as we move forward. And as of last week, uh, we saw their chart where basically we're back now in balance between E, S, and G, with each of those weightings being approximately 33%. So the, the, the market has reverted back. And maybe that finishes off with the last prediction that we had in that, um, in that survey, which was that 80, 87% of those investors that we spoke to had predicted that climate change would remain a priority and that it would be back on the agenda before the end of 2020. So we're definitely seeing that happen. And we're definitely seeing the momentum increase uh, across the board when it comes to uh, ESG and responsible investing. You're co-founder and co-chair mm -hmm. of the Finance and Sustainability Initiative of Finance Montreal. Sure. Can so you this tell was a, your work a vision um, that I had, uh, I guess, almost 12 years ago. And part of that vision was uh, given the background of the fundamental approach to research that Montreal's finance community has. It tends to be a little bit different than other, other cities. Um, and it was really that I felt that Montreal, Montreal could impact um, its own economy by attracting more and more of these responsible investment or ESG types of investment organizations. So I started with a, with a colleague at the time. Um, and we, what we slowly decided that we wanted to do was to help educate and bring knowledge of this responsible investment movement into the community, um, and in particular the investment community, but also the broader business community by bringing speakers and, and, and what we've done is we've created something called the Sustainable Investment Certification Program that is now housed at Concordia University here in Montreal. We've worked with students um, and have created something called the Best Sustainability Reporting Competition that has teams of university students rating sustainability reports of Canadian companies. And we brought countless speakers into Montreal to help, that, help our community learn about the intricacies of this topic. 
So the Finance and Sustainability Initiative was taken over by Finance Montreal, which is an umbrella group of all the financial players who operate in Montreal. And that took place about a year and a half ago. And they've continued with these initiatives of the FSI and have now have a professional staffing to continue to drive this vision, are fully engaged to bring ESG and responsible investment and sustainable finance to life here in Montreal, but also across Canada. And I remain highly involved with the organization as it, as it moves to help the financial community here embrace this new and exciting trend in capital markets. That's some really cool work. And now I'm going to have to look into this certification you mentioned too. Um, <laughs> well, no, yeah, you're ahead was, of your it's time. It's not just me. There were an, <laughs> an, an, an enormous number of uh, volunteers who were involved with the organization over those uh, 10 or 12 years who drove it with all their passion as well as my own. Um, I just happened to be the instigator and, and driving it, but there were numerous people who uh, helped all of these different initiatives come to fruition. Perfect. And how can people get in touch with you? To me, either on LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn, or uh, on our website at www.milani.ca. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Green Bull Radio. I'm your host, Kendall Titchener. Please submit guest ideas and ESG-related questions via our social media at Green Bull Radio on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.